Are you planning on singing someday that sweet song up there? Amen. Planning on it? Amen. Do you believe it? Amen. Completely? Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and read about the Savior as He was preached in the day of Pentecost that provides that great victory for us. Acts chapter 2. This morning we saw an outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the day of Pentecost that changed the apostles. And 120 apostles and disciples began to speak fluently in other languages, and they were Galileans. A Galilean couldn't even speak Hebrew fluently or correctly, and that's why men of Judea would mock even a Galilean, because they were fishermen from the north country. If you look at a map, quite a ways from Judea. And so the great multitude came together, hearing such a great thing taking place. Some said, what it meaneth this? And others said, oh, they're just drunk with new wine. And Peter stood up and cut off the first argument by saying it's a little early to be drunk this at 9 o'clock in the morning. And what fools they were to even make such a mockery, for alcohol does not improve the faculty of speech. It destroys it. And to have Galileans speaking other languages fluently was obviously something greater than that and very different from that. But then we saw that Peter said, it's not drunkenness, it's the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied a long time ago. And then he laid out five, four verses, five verses from Joel chapter 2 that we saw this morning running from verses 17 down through 21. After making that long, lengthy quote, which is in the future tense only because Joel wrote it. It's not in the future tense from Peter's time. We shouldn't be looking for it. It's been long fulfilled because Peter said, this is that. And for the first half of Acts chapter 2, if you want three words that you need to remember, it's in the 16th verse, this is that, spoken by the prophet Joel, and it will clear up a great deal of trouble. We saw that the great notable day of the Lord that was coming was the destruction of Jerusalem because he first baptized with the Holy Ghost and then he was going to baptize them with fire and burn up their city. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved was not a deliverance from hell in this sermon. It was a deliverance from the destruction of Jerusalem because that was the pressing weight of the moment that Peter was laying on the wicked hands that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Right. And so we take up again in verse 22, where he ends his quote from Joel and begins to preach again. And he addressed the men of Israel. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. This first part of Peter's message is, Jesus is alive. You thought you crucified him. You thought you saw him give up the ghost on the cross of Calvary, but he's alive. Because the 24th verse says, whom God hath raised up. Now Peter's going to have more to say about that, that he's been a witness of him being alive, but right now he introduces 
the fact Jesus, whom you crucified with wicked hands, is alive. We covered these verses this morning, but let me briefly mention verse 23 again. We could mention every word in all of these verses again. We'd be here forever. Uh, and there wouldn't be total shame in that, but there's lots of things to preach, brethren, and I, I itch and wait to go and preach more things. We want to move through the book of Acts so that you get the big picture with the big lesson for us. They were holy saints, Amen. and we want to be like them. Amen. That's the lesson we want to take from the book of Acts. It's just not head knowledge of what Paul and the other apostles that are mentioned did. Jesus had been approved by God with his wonderful miracles that he had done, and they'd all seen them. They knew about them, and yet they crucified the Lord of glory. But in the 23rd verse, it says that Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And we pointed out that no matter what you read in the paper, how evil or wicked the event, how cruel the torture that one human being would exact upon another, it's under the government of God and by his determinate counsel for the most evil of all events was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet it played out exactly as God had determined it would play out. If you don't like my choice of words, then you don't like the Holy Spirit of God. Because it was the determinant counsel. That is, God determined exactly what was going to happen. But He's got very willing participants when it comes to evil deeds. All He has to do is direct us. Because we chase after evil like a horse after water. And so God directed what occurred on the cross of Calvary. But I want you to notice something as we move on. When it comes to the sovereign government of God of the universe, when He uses men to accomplish His own will, He never has to infuse evil into them because they have enough evil in themselves. Never does He do that. Let no man deceive you by any means. Be not deceived. God is not tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. And because of that fact, and Peter sticks that into the 23rd verse by saying, Ye, in verse 23, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. They weren't robotic hands. They weren't neutral hands. They weren't forced hands. They were wicked hands. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a deed of wickedness, though it perfectly accomplished the will of God. You say, that's too high for me. I say, amen. How can a God accomplish His infinitely perfect will and yet hold the creature responsible? Because He is God and we are the clay. He's the potter. Shall the thing formed say to Him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? It's a joke to even form the question. Let's go on. Down to verse 25. Peter has introduced whom God hath raised up. This Jesus that you crucified, has been raised from the dead. For David speaketh concerning him. And the Apostle Peter is now going to show that he is full of the Holy Ghost and opens up a psalm to us. Let's go back and read Psalm 16. Psalm 16, just a few verses in it that Peter here quotes. The Apostle Peter 
who didn't want Jesus to even go to the cross, who didn't understand that he was going to rise from the dead three days later, is now opening up the Word of God. Acts chapter 1, he opened up several psalms to show us that Judas was mentioned in the psalms and what needed to be done about Judas. Now he's opening up another psalm. He's already opened up Joel. Would you have figured Joel out if you had been reading through the book of Joel? Well, Peter already explained that for us by the power of the Holy Ghost. We come to to Psalm 16. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We read that psalm, and we know it, brethren. And I can't take you back to a place of not knowing it and showing it to you as Peter was about to do. That would have been a great moment. Those men didn't know what Psalm 16 was about, but we know it. These verses are about the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come back to Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes those four verses from Psalm 16 in verses 25 down through 28. And then he says in verse 29, but first, before I do that, let me just mention a few things from that 16th Psalm. I foresaw the Lord always. What does death do? It takes people away from us. It takes people away so that we don't see them anymore. But the psalmist said in Psalm 16, verse 8, I saw the Lord always. In the next verse, David wrote about resting in hope. We don't go, to, there is no hope in the grave if you're going to stay there forever. If there isn't a resurrection, there is no hope. It's the end. It's horrible. It's forever. It's over. But there was hope in this resting that the prophet spoke, that David spoke of. Then it said he would save his Holy One from corruption. There would be a rescue from hell and a deliverance from corruption. And then it says that he would be shown the ways of life and God's countenance. And all of those little words in there are talking about the resurrection of the dead. I don't want to comment on every little word from Psalm 16. I want to move on to Peter's application of it. He quotes these words that they knew well. But then he makes these reasoning remarks. And this is how preaching ought to be done. Lay out the word of God and reason from it. God himself would say, come, let us reason together. The Apostle Paul would say in Acts chapter 17 that his method of preaching was to open the scriptures and allege from them, and that was his manner, reasoning out of the scriptures every Sabbath day. That's how Paul preached. This is how Peter preaches right here. When the Holy Ghost is in a man, he lays open the word of God and reasons from it. Men and brethren, verse 29, let me freely speak unto you, of the patriarch David. Now they had great agreement on this subject. He was a great patriarch of the nation of Israel, a great father in Israel. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you about him. I can speak freely here because we're going to agree on this point, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. 
Men and brethren, I have just preached to you four verses from Psalm 16, where David speaks of life and deliverance from corruption, deliverance from the grave, being in God's presence, always being there, and seeing the paths of life. Men and brethren, I think we can all agree that we have a sepulcher down the street where everyone knows that David is still buried. Therefore, since he spoke of seeing life again and not resting forever in the grave, but resting in hope that he would be, that there would be a resurrection, therefore, since he is in the grave and did see corruption, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This is how preaching is done. Open up the word of God and reason from it so that it's obvious. Peter reads four verses from Psalm 16, and he says, Brethren, you and I both know that David is down the street. His bones are in dust. And they're there in the tomb. He died. He did see corruption. There he is. We know it. But now, David was a prophet. He's just, this is called inductive reasoning. Taking a whole lot of facts and coming to a conclusion that David wasn't talking about himself. David was a prophet. David knew that God had sworn with an oath, Psalm 89, that he would raise up a son to David to sit on his throne forever. Therefore, those words that couldn't have been fulfilled about David because he's down the street in a tomb. David was a prophet, so David did tell things about the future. He, seeing this before, he saw an event before it happened. That was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wasn't speaking of himself. He was speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God would raise him up to sit on his throne. He was talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, they hadn't had a good explanation for Psalm 16 until that moment. Many of these men were devout men out of every nation under heaven that had come to Jerusalem to worship because it was one of the three required feasts, the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. And there they are. They knew Psalm 16. They probably could have quoted it in reverse, backwards. And there's Peter giving them an explanation of it that they'd never heard, never thought about, because they couldn't have applied it to David. That's why Peter could speak, speak freely on that subject. They knew he was dead and buried. Peter opens it up. He's already introduced the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he shows it from that psalm. Brethren, these were devout men. Some of them. Some were mockers. But some were devout men. Can you put yourself in their heart? They were there at Pentecost. Some of them would have been there at Pentecost because they knew the 70 weeks of Daniel were fulfilled. Absolutely. The time was at hand. They were there. They see this incredible outpouring of the Holy Ghost with everyone speaking, 120 men and women speaking, yes, women spoke in tongues, women prophesied, but not in the assemblies of the New Testament church. They did it in private. I don't want to chase that any further. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you know they didn't speak in the assemblies. But they, the Spirit was poured out upon handmaidens in those days, and Philip had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy that is indeed a maiden.
There were men there that heard Peter open to them the 16th Psalm and explain David couldn't have been talking about himself. The only obvious conclusion that we can draw from Psalm 16, adding together what he said, that he was a prophet, that there was a promise made that he would have a son. He was speaking of that son, and it's the prophesied Messiah that we've been waiting for. He didn't see corruption. He was delivered from the grave. His flesh did not see corruption. This Jesus, this Jesus, the son of David, made in prophecy from Psalm 16, hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. He lays out the word of God, shows them that it must have been talking about Christ, and then he says, we have seen him. He is indeed alive. We are his witnesses. This Jesus that you have crucified with wicked hands is indeed alive, and we all are witnesses. We've seen him. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. That is how he answered the question, what meaneth this? 120 speaking in tongues, all different languages. It, that, that is noised abroad. That, the news of that great event attracts a huge crowd in Jerusalem. And Peter takes his time working up to the explanation as to where it came from. Where it came from was that that Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Not only did he raise him from the dead, he set him down at his own right hand in heaven and gave him the spoils of his great accomplishments while he was here in this world, and he has poured out this gift, and you are witnessing it right now. Wow. Amen. What a glorious day. And you're going to see that it affected those men just like I hope that it's affecting your soul thinking about having been there with them. Therefore, he just keeps drawing conclusions. Therefore, 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 since this is the Son of Jesus, therefore, since he is raised from the dead and we have seen him, therefore, he's now at the right hand of God, just like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 described that he would be. And he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. They have tongues of fire on their head, and they're speaking in every language of every nation under heaven, fluently. And those men are totally blown away by hearing Galileans, who can't even speak their own language well, speaking their language perfectly, and declaring unto them the great works of God. And Peter just lays it open. Now, this, this is a fisherman, brethren. This is a fisherman that when he opened his mouth, everyone knew that he hadn't been to school. But they also knew when he opened his mouth that he had been with Jesus. Amen. And when you've got the Holy Ghost blessing your faculty of speech and your faculty of reasoning, that is a powerful message in a few words. Do you know it only takes a few minutes to read that? Mm -hmm. It only takes a few minutes to read that, and the Apostle Peter led those Jews there to the conclusion, the obvious conclusion that they couldn't avoid. David foretold these days, we have witnessed these days, he is in heaven pouring out what you're seeing with your own two eyes and hearing with your ears. What we're telling you is the truth. Jesus is alive and Jesus is king. Amen. Because he's exalted at the right hand of God. Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. That's from Psalm 110 that we read this morning. 
Peter just is pulling it right along. Not only is Jesus Christ alive, not only was he resurrected, not only did he ascend into heaven, not only did he pour out the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which you're witnessing right now, but he is sitting at the right hand of God, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 110. And he said that, for David is not. That can't be David. We're still talking, we're still talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's sitting at God's right hand, where God has said, I will make thy foes thy footstool. Now, brethren, he's just accused this whole crowd of having wicked hands and crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, the one that you've crucified so cruelly is alive. Not only is he alive, he's exalted at God's right hand. Not only is he exalted at God's right hand, but we've got another little prophecy from Psalm 110 that says that God is going to make his enemies into his footstool. Now, what would you do at that point? And this is Peter, the one who couldn't handle a maid before a fire. He draws this conclusion. We have another therefore. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen and amen. What a statement. I love that 36th verse. That is Peter taking his short little sermon and condensing it down to one powerful conclusion. He's not through yet, but it's a concluding remark drawn from what he's reasoned so far. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, Lord and Christ. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Do you know the horror of that moment? If you had a spirit that was convicted by the Holy Ghost and prepared by regeneration to hear that warning that that Jesus that's been crucified by you and your brethren, whether you took direct a role in that or not, crucified by the inhabitants of your city, that Jesus is Lord and Christ and is at the right hand of God with a prophecy still yet to be fulfilled. That is God making his enemies his footstool. That is God would grind, Jesus would grind them under his feet. Verse 36. Beautiful. That's the conclusion to that part of Peter's sermon. And I love verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Brethren, you can preach the gospel. Anyone, a man can preach the gospel, no matter how eloquent he is, no matter how much scripture he uses, no matter how loud he preaches, no matter how long he preaches, unless the Lord prepares the heart so that that message pricks him with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost convicting him to hear and to respond to that word, this isn't the response that you get. And this is not the general response. Most men do not want to hear about Jesus Christ. That message right there, which is so plain, so simple, and so powerful, if it were preached in the world, 99 times out of 100, it is rejected and mocked and scoffed at. What makes the difference? Come over to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Here is another great sermon that we're going to get to in a few weeks. And this is preached by Stephen one of the first deacons, a man full of the Holy Ghost. And he preaches an excellent sermon. 
And when he concludes it, here is the response he, he received. Verse 54. Acts 7, 54. Another great sermon under the power of the Holy Ghost. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Look at verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. I read over here in Acts 2 and verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. What a difference. What a difference that makes. Some men hear the preaching of Jesus Christ, and it convicts them, it pricks them, it provokes them. And the answer here was, men and brethren, what shall we do? That is a true conversion. What shall we do? What can I do to please that Savior? What can I do for that Savior? That is the answer of a soul that's pricked. A soul that's cut. Stops up. Can you imagine that? How much they hated the words that were coming out of his mouth. They started screaming with a loud voice so they couldn't hear him. They stopped up their ears. They ran on him with one accord, drug him out of the city, and stoned him to death. What's the explanation for all of that? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is one of the verses that we would look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That sermon by Peter is glorious. So was Stephen's. Beautiful. Well laid out. Logical. You are left at a position at the end when he says his final therefore. You have to agree with him. Because it's airtight. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's weighty. doesn't matter if your heart's not right. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul said this. In verse 14, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Now wait a minute. I thought I just said that you could preach that message, and 99, I was just rounding off at some number, 99 times out of 100, men would reject it. But look at Paul said, Thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. Follow this with me. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. Paul's saying, we preach the gospel, and we are sweet to God in the saved and in the lost. To the one, we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other, the savour of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. That's a warning about contemporary Christianity of this year. But as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. They didn't modify their message to increase the crowd. Because they knew that they triumphed in all cases anyway. In the case of Stephen, when Stephen preached and it cut those men to their heart and they ran on Stephen and stoned him, they were proving that they were lost. And it was a sweet savour to God because God had preached the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ by way of Stephen and they rejected it. They had judged themselves. I'm not worthy of everlasting life. I deserve to go to hell. And that is sweet to God Almighty. And then you preach to the crowd on the day of Pentecost and you lay out the gospel as well as Peter did and they said, what shall we do? And that is sweet 
to God Almighty to see those that he has prepared willing to obey and to follow. And the true preaching of the cross always is successful and always causes us to triumph in Jesus Christ. And the message cannot be modified. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Paul never modified his message to increase increase the crowd or to get more down the aisle. You ask most people in most churches why they do things, and they'll say we want to win the lost at any cost. We want to get the young people so they have rock and roll parties and all sorts of gimmicks. And the apostles just kept on preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What a huge difference. What a difference. 3,000 men in one place, what shall we do? Some men in another place, stopping up your ears and screaming and running? This wasn't sitting down and thinking evil things about Stephen. That showed a demonic spirit of hatred for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the most wicked generation the world has ever seen. I promise you that in the authority of the words of Jesus Christ. And Josephus, the general of their armies, as he witnessed their destruction in 70 AD, said the world had never seen a generation so filled with evil as that generation. He repeats it over and over again for those of you who've read it. And he used the word generation, didn't he, David? Never had the world seen such an evil generation. I see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, though, a further explanation. Verse 18, verse 17, for Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Do you understand the importance of that verse? We preach the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't preach it in a pleasing way. We don't try to seduce men. We don't try to entice men. We don't want to interest men. We want to preach Jesus Christ. And if we vary from that, We make the cross of Christ of none effect because the cross of Jesus Christ is the great dividing matter, issue between men. Some will believe it and some are going to hate it. Most will hate it. Some will believe it. For the next verse tells us, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But the whole world wants us to believe that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish the way to get saved. But the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Now, how can you get saved by something that you think is foolishness? The difference is made by God. The the next part of that verse is, But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. I wish men would read their Bibles. We don't preach the gospel in order to get men saved. We preach the gospel and it is believed by men that are saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that. Look at verse 22. The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So therefore, if you wanted to build your church out of more Jews, what would you give them? Miracles. Could Paul have done it? What couldn't he have done? He could have spun the church building in circles. The Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. Was Paul trained well enough to have preached in a way? that would have attracted wisdom-seeking Greeks? Yes. But what did he choose to do? We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, it's a stumbling block, so we don't get very many of them. Unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. We don't get very many of them. 
but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. They are unto them which are called. Where God has already made the difference, that's what makes the difference in the response. So when we see the response, and brethren, I'm half preaching to myself right now, I get discouraged sometimes when we present the gospel to someone and they don't believe it. Because I do my very best sometimes to persuade someone, but I want to tell you, you can't persuade a dead heart. The Lord must change the heart. And then it's all of God. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. Paul is preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 13. Verse 45 tells us, When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul. Contradicting and blaspheming. Acts 13, 45. That's the response of one group. But then in verse 48 we read, And when the Gentiles heard this, same preaching, same man, same place, same station, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Amen. That is the difference. That is the difference. Jesus said to the Jews of his day, You don't believe me because you cannot hear my speech. John chapter 8. They could not even hear him. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him. But when God regenerates a man, then he says, What shall we do? And let's get back to Acts chapter 2. What shall we do, brethren? They heard that Jesus is alive. They heard that Jesus is king. They heard that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies of a Savior. What shall we do? Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And brethren, that's what we want to see. When we see someone that says, what shall I do? You don't, you don't want to save any, spare any expense or any time helping a person like that. Amen. The questioning and opposing and arguing is not the sign of anything except a dead soul. When you go through the New Testament, you do not find men arguing with the apostles. They heard the truth. God prepared their hearts. They said, what do we do? How long did it take the Philippian jailer to get everything settled that night? Before daybreak, wasn't he all taken care of with his whole household? Amen. Baptized and everything. Peter's not going to take any longer here either. This idea of us waiting weeks and weeks while I think about getting baptized, I want to tell you something. We're not preaching to people who have never heard the gospel before at all like Peter was able to do. However, I need to think about this. What's wrong with your heart? Either God is true or he's not. Right. And if he's true, you need to be saying, what should I do? Amen. And if it takes much longer than that, you need to start doubting their conversion. Right. Because when the gospel is preached from the word of God, there ought to be obedience. Amen. And to a regenerated soul, there will be. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. What's Peter's answer? Then Peter said unto them, And brethren, our, ha- our answer hasn't changed today. It's still the same. Right. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Haven't I told you enough about Jesus? 
He's alive. He's at God's right hand. He's pouring out this great gift that you're seeing. And He is Lord. And God is going to make His enemies His footstool. I would say to you, may I suggest that you get baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, we don't have time tonight for a whole study on Acts 2.38, because hopefully you know what it doesn't mean. It cannot mean that men who were dead in trespasses and sins, with all the guilt still upon them, were to get baptized in order to be saved, in order to be born again, in order to have their sins remitted and put away by Jesus Christ. Instead, they were to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ as the only means of their remission of sins. Jesus Christ is the one that remits sins. He paid for sins. He died on the cross. He was the Lamb of God. He was the prophesied Messiah. He was Shiloh that was to come. He was the seed of the woman. He was everything and the end all in all salvation. Be baptized in His name as a testimony for the remission of sins. You say you're sticking words in the Word of God. Of course I am. They're, they're understood by Peter and his hearers. Baptism according to 1 Peter chapter 1 Peter is it really Peter that wrote this? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience and it doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. Right. If baptism is the answer of a good conscience, then we don't go into the waters of baptism with a bad conscience and come out with a good one. We go into the waters of baptism with a good conscience. Why? Because Jesus has paid for our sins. Right. And we want to be baptized in His name in a picture of what He did for us by His burial and His resurrection. And that's what 1 Peter 3.21 teaches also, that it's a figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. And what's the whole message here? Jesus is alive and Jesus is King. Get baptized in that picture of burial and resurrection so that you look like one of Christ's disciples. Amen. That's what we're to do. Repent and be baptized in the, every one of you. What a what power. This is, is this the same man that a few days earlier couldn't handle a little maid? Repent and be baptized. You know, most men today were af- afraid to say that. We'll give them a few weeks to think about it. We'll send them an email and suggest that maybe they ought to think about baptism. Well, here's Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. When you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you are giving a demonstration that you believe that your sins were remitted by the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why did the Lord word it that way? I'm going to tell you. you, Just get ready. Why did the Lord word Acts 2.38 in such a way that whole denominations, millions and millions of people, yea, today, it is true, it is true, billions of people would believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. Why would the Lord do that when he knew that it would cause so much confusion? Because they were men that did not want to humble themselves before the word of God and study it properly to see God's truth and to exalt God and to lower man. They wanted to give themselves a means of salvation themselves, and so God left them some verses to do it. And this isn't the only one. Did you know that in Acts 22 and verse 16 it says, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Oh, that sounds bad too. And did you know that it says in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Oh, and why does it say in John 3, 5, Except a man be born of water, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Oh, Lord, why did you do that? Do you know what he would say? He's already said it, Matthew chapter 13. Because to you, it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it is not given. Amen. Do you believe God would do that? I believe that God is the author of the confusion that came from the Tower of Babel and a whole lot of other towers in between. Amen. And I can think of one that's in the middle of the Holy See. That's S-E-E. He is the author of confusion. By confounding men's understandings of the Word of God when they don't want to submit to it. Here's how it happens. Just, oh, just very quickly. The pastor of the church at Rome was called Father one time. He said to himself, I like that. You know, there were, pe- there were other people out there on the sidewalk when they addressed me as Father. The, the church at Rome taught the truth as Paul had given it, exactly as we believe it. The pastor of the church at Rome, who was the bishop of the church at Rome, heard himself being addressed as Father, because that was a problem. It was a problem in Christ's day, and it was a problem in the Corinthians. They called him Father. He liked the sound of that in public, to be addressed as Father. And so he didn't correct that person, and pretty soon it became common practice to call the bishop of Rome Father. Now, Jesus Christ, that bishop's Lord and Master, had said, Call no man Father upon earth. And he let them call him Father. And I want to tell you what happened. He sat down one day to prepare a sermon, and he went to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and he got some new light. And do you know what the new light was? Baptismal regeneration. I need to start preaching that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved, because that's what it says right there. And before you know it, we're 2,000 years later, they've had 13 million priests and monks studying that passage for the last 2,000 years and built the monstrous doctrine called baptismal regeneration. And because once you make baptism saving and you don't want all these babies that are dying during the Middle Ages to go to hell, you start baptizing babies so that mommies can be satisfied that their babies are going to go to heaven because you started with the false doctrine that baptism saves. And all that came because on the sidewalk one day, that bishop did not correct one of his church members when they addressed him as father. If sometimes you think we're a little too picky, you're wrong, and I hope you'll change your attitude about it. That is what God sees. God saw a man that didn't want to follow his word in the Gospels where he was told not to be called Father, and the Lord puts a blinder over his eyes, and you can believe anything. You will never see light. Those are the words of God. It is Every day we should pray that God will keep us. He can lead you anywhere, because guess what? You have a sin nature that wants to go there already. You have a sin nature that wants to believe a lie. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Acts 2.38 And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What were they seeing? The gift of the Holy Ghost. What is the gift of the Holy Ghost? It's Jesus giving His Spirit to replace His absence from the world. Jesus is here by His Spirit, and so He gives the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
Many of these men that were baptized here would speak in tongues and have some of the other supernatural blessings that the apostles had that were doing the baptizing, but not all of them. And we receive the, we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost the very same way, by believing and being baptized. Right. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to say one thing here, though, that I'm not going to have time to prove very far. There isn't such a thing as believing and not being baptized. I can't find it in the New Testament. I've studied from cover to cover, and there aren't believers that aren't baptized. If you believe, the first thing you want to do about one minute later is get baptized. Because baptism is the proof that you want to follow Jesus Christ. It's a picture of what you're putting all your trust in. It's a picture of dying to your old man and rising to walk in newness of life. For baptism? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of His glory. Verse 13 tells us that the Ephesian saints, second generation Christians, received the Holy Spirit of promise. Remember, it was the promise of the Spirit that God gave Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ gave it to His church. They received it upon believing. You say, but there it says believing. That's because the Bible doesn't separate the two. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Because baptism is the act of obedience that gives some life to your faith. Right. The devils believe and tremble, but they don't do anything about it. I haven't read about any devils being baptized. They wouldn't like going underwater in the name of Jesus Christ. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We receive it the same way. You say, but when I was baptized, all I felt was wet. I agree. That's all a feeling God may give you at your baptism because you do it by faith. When you're baptized by faith, in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of His Spirit. You say, but I was already born again in order to be baptized, wasn't I? That's true. But the added filling and strengthening and earnest of our inheritance, as Ephesians 1 describes it, and the sealing of our salvation, the blessing of God confirming to us that we are His, comes at baptism. That is when we fully feel, because of our obedience, and know inside, Abba Father, You are our Father, we are your children, because of the blessing of the Spirit of God. That is the order. That is New Testament order, and it hasn't changed. And brethren, Peter was preaching to Jews, but look what he sticks into this passage. Verse 39, For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. How many are going to repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? As many as the Lord our God shall call. Not as many as who exercise their free will, but as many as the Lord our God shall call. And how many does He call? Those that He, you got it, justified. And whom does He justify? Those that He predestinated. And whom does He predestinate? But those He foreknew, Romans chapter 8. And who does He call? Those that were ordained to eternal life. Acts 13, 48, that we've already read. But brethren, you better love verse 38, 9. The promise. Notice up in verse 33, God gave the promise of the Holy Ghost to Jesus. Where were those promises made? John 14, John 15, John 16. Jesus spoke about those promises. God gave the Spirit to Jesus. Jesus gives the Spirit to His followers. 
But verse 39 includes you and me. If it did not say to, uh, to unto you and to your children, that right there proves that this was not just a time of reformation blessing. This was perpetual for this age, the kingdom of God, to you and to your children, and to all that are afar off. Look, hold your finger at Acts 2 because you know we're going back. But look at Ephesians chapter 2 again. Oh, brethren, you better be thankful for the words to all that are afar off. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What kind of saints were they at Ephesus? Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. To you that were afar off, you're now made nigh by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 17. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now that ties it all together right there. The gift of the Holy Ghost is to those that were near, the Jews, and to those that were afar off, the Gentiles, and it's for generations. This is the order of the gospel. Repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're still doing it today. And with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. The rest of his sermon, which is not included here by Luke, but Luke tells us by the Holy Spirit that there were many other words. And what was he preaching? He was preaching the sermon that Jesus Christ had given in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, that he was going to come back and destroy that city with tribulation, the likes of which the world had never seen. And they needed to repent and call on the name of Jesus Christ and save themselves from that untoward generation. What do you think most commentaries do with Acts 2.40 in the last 200 years? They stumble. They stumble greatly and they fall. And their fall is great. It's like Humpty Dumpty. Because they've never imagined that there's a salvation that you're responsible for. And there is one. Save yourselves. Do you remember how practical Jesus' warnings were? He was going to the cross. There were women weeping there beside the road. And he said to them, women, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, because the days are coming that are going to be horrible. Because if they're doing this thing in a green tree, what will they do in a dry do you remember those words? I hope you do. Matthew 24, Jesus said, Woe unto those that be with suck in those days. And you know, I've always wondered. They take Matthew 24 and stick it out as a raptured tribulation passage. What difference does it make if a woman's raptured, whether she's nursing or not? I would say that a woman who's nursing and has the proper spirit is raptured anyway. But to be raptured twice, I mean, she's raptured because she's nursing her baby, and she's raptured because Jesus Christ takes her. I don't see any woe in that passage that way. But when I look at it and understand it, that it was the destruction of Jerusalem and a nursing mother would have to flee out to the mountains and live in a cave for several months while God made the enemies of Jesus his footstool, then it makes sense, doesn't it? It's so practical. Jesus says, pray that your flight not be in the Sabbath day because you're going to get stopped by all the Pharisees wondering why you're traveling so far on the Sabbath day. Save yourselves from this untoward generation with many other words. You might think that we mention this a little often, 
The reason is, no one else mentions it at all, and we need to correct your misunderstanding of the New Testament. The message that Peter had to preach was glorious. They already knew that the son of David was their Messiah and deliverer from sin. They needed to hear that he was also going to be grinding them to powder, and they needed to save themselves from that wicked generation that had slain him. Right. Look at that, Acts 2.40. Thank the Lord that you, you understand Acts 2.40. It looks so obvious now that you wonder how could anybody not understand it. But it's only by the grace of God. Amen. Then, verse 41, they that gladly received his word were baptized. No catechism classes, no weeks or months of delaying. Then they that gladly received his word. And brethren, I want to tell you about regenerate souls. When they come in here, they will not argue. They will not confusedly hear words. They will gladly hear words. Amen. Then they that gladly received his word. That is the very same spirit that is called noble in Acts 17, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all, not a little, all readiness of mind. Right. When we meet people that with a ready mind receive what they're being taught, that's a noble man. And what do we mean by noble? That means God has changed his heart. Amen. Not only did they receive it with all readiness of mind, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so, not to see if those things were not so. There's a huge difference on how someone hears the Word of God and goes to the Word of God. There is the, well, I'm going to prove him wrong. And then there's, that was, a, that was the most wonderful thing that I've ever heard. Oh, Lord, could it be true? It is. It is. It is. And it's all of God. Amen. But when we see the other response, that is still a savour in the nostrils of Almighty God. It's the savour of death unto death. The world is full of skeptics and critics who do not want to humble themselves and receive the word of God gladly. Let's make sure that we always have the noble spirit to receive the word of God gladly with all readiness of mind, and we search the scriptures to confirm it, not to argue against it. Huge difference. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Amen. Wow. Now that's an increase in church membership. Yep. When you've got 120 on the attendance board hanging on the... We forgot ours today. Amen. Where's our attendance board? Nathan, you forgot to hang it this morning. We don't have an attendance board because we're not in some numbers game. We're in the Lord's business Amen. of Him saving us Amen. and waiting for Him to work. But they had 120 and they jumped to 3,120 in one day. That's the blessing of the Spirit of God right. on a church. How did, they, how did they get added? The same day that were added unto them, about 3,000 souls. Well, the Lord brings along 3,000 baptized believers, and those baptized believers say, we want to stay with you. And the apostles say, well, here's what we're going to do. And they say, that sounds good to us. And you've got 3,120 church members. Baptism did not make them church members. You know what's been taught from this passage in other places at other times, and we don't believe it. 
Baptism-making church members is what Rome believes, remember? The little baby gets sprinkled, and a little certificate is filled out, and that little baby is now a member of the Church of Rome. Forever and ever, whether they go to church or not, whatever they think of the Pope, whether they have abortions or not, divorces or not, all the things contrary to the Church of Rome, it doesn't matter, they're a Catholic. We don't believe anything like that. We believe that the Apostle Paul came to the Church of Jerusalem, yes, this very same church, and tried to join it. After a service one day, he came to the front and said, I would like to join you and have communion with you. Well, the church looked at the Apostle Paul, whom they only knew as Saul, and said, no way. That is Acts chapter 9. And so Saul, Saul, whoa, I didn't know. Yes, that's the reception he got, no way. Because there were people sitting out there that had relatives out in the church cemetery because of the Saul of Tarsus. So they had to send up to Antioch and and bring down Damascus and bring down Barnabas, who came in there and testified, listen, he's truly been converted. I've heard him preaching in Damascus. Believe him. And then he was accepted as a member there. Do you know what a traumatic event that would have been for that church? What would we do if John Paul II's limo pulled up out there and walked in here? Would you need a few minutes? How about me baptizing him out there in the swimming pool? Uh, that would help, wouldn't it? Amen. I know you all, I know you all laugh at such a... The Lord can do anything. That's right. I'd be happy to do it. I don't care how much he weighs. I could do it in shallow water. The Lord does great things, and that's how they're added to the church. That's how the Apostle Paul became a member at Jerusalem, and you can read it in Acts chapter 9. But brethren, I want to conclude with the most powerful verses of Acts chapter 2 for us. Now those were powerful verses for them, but the powerful verses for us are right here. What did these 3,120 act like? This is what we want from Acts. This is what I want to feed you, brethren. This is what I want to feed myself. This is the word of God. This is why we have history. Not to know what happened in the past only, but to know what were these saints like. I want to be like them. Do you know what? These are primitive Baptists. Were they just baptized? Would you say the year 33 AD is pretty primitive? These are primitive Baptists. Do you want to look for the old paths? Let's not look back to 1850. Let's look back to 33. Right Right here. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued. Just notice the words. We're not going to take long on this, but I just want you to see the words. And I want to tell you, if you're reading Acts with us while we're preaching through it, I want you to focus on these last verses of Acts chapter 2 because they're the ones for us. They continued. Not only did they continue, but they continued steadfastly. That is not being moved away at all. They weren't shaken. They weren't varying around. They were steadfast, solid, not moving in the doctrine of the apostles and in the fellowship of the apostles. The apostles' doctrine was very simple. Jesus said, Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That was the Apostles' Doctrine. 
and then whatever the Lord blessed them here in this time of reformation to be adding to that until we get all that we know today. They continued steadfastly in that doctrine, and they continued steadfastly in fellowship with the apostles. There wasn't division. There wasn't fighting. There wasn't strife. There wasn't envy. They weren't pitting one apostle against another apostle. They weren't saying, this is my... They did that shortly, didn't they? They didn't do it here. They may have had some divisions at Corinth, but they didn't have divisions at Jerusalem. And you know what? There was a real difference. The church at Corinth had spiritual gifts galore, but they didn't have much of the Holy Spirit. You say, how in the world do you pull that off? How did Judas perform miracles without any regenerate soul within him at all? They had spiritual gifts, but they weren't obeying the Spirit. These people obeyed the Spirit and continued steadfastly. In the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now I want you to notice something. We've got to take it. It doesn't. It's not an important position. We know that these three thousand one hundred and twenty had communion often. Do you know why we know that? Because they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. If the apostles' doctrine was teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, what was one of the things that Jesus commanded? This do in remembrance of me. They were doing that because of that phrase. When we come to the phrase breaking of bread, the breaking of bread is mentioned often throughout the New Testament, and it's a common expression for common eating. It can also mean the Lord's Supper. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 tells us they came together on the first day of the week to break bread. But here, I believe this is common eating, and here's the reasons why. The prepositional phrase in the apostles in the apostles in the apostles doctrine and fellowship is not the same for those two following little descriptions. They continued steadfastly in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now if it had added if it had said in the apostles doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread, we would have imagined them doing something with the apostles. It says the doctrine was the apostles, the fellowship was the apostles. But the breaking of bread and the prayers were something they were doing among themselves, which is further explanified in the following verses. If we look at verse 46, that they continued with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, there's that expression again, from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. That is common eating. And the reason we know it for, for two reasons. One, it was called meat. Two, it was from house to house. Communion was not done from house to house. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us very plainly that the Lord's Supper is when everyone comes together into one place. It's not done from house to house. I believe that breaking of bread is just what's described in the context of verse 46. It's eating meat, and they did it with gladness and singleness of heart. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, which would have included the Lord's Supper. They ate together often, and they continued in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. Brother, when you're doing what's right, when you're serving God and following the Scriptures, fear came on every soul. Not ungodly fear, not fear of men, but the proper fear of God. They increased in that fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom and of knowledge, And that we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 is the proper and acceptable way to worship God with reverence and godly fear that came on them and filled them from the inside as they obeyed the Holy Ghost. 
and continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And of course, there was fear there because of all that the apostles did also. Remember, they were, in, they were amazed at the gift of tongues. Well, the gift of tongues was only the beginning. There were many miracles done after that that showed divine power everywhere among them. Do you, it tells us the church greatly feared after Ananias and Sapphira fell down dead in a church service in Acts chapter 5. That would cause some fear. Fear came upon every soul. Fear is a good thing. Amen. We don't have enough of it. Right. The Bible commends the fear of the Lord from beginning to end. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. The fear of the Lord is the knowledge of the holy. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord saves from the fear of man. It saves everything to fear the Lord. And it was increased as they obeyed. And that's how the Holy Spirit works. The more we obey, the more the Spirit blesses us to have those graces that we want. Don't you find yourself sometimes sinning too easily and you wish you feared the Lord more and hated sin more? This is a blessing out of obedience. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. It doesn't say the fear was the result of that, although we know that that was true. It says fear came on every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles because where there's a great fear of God, the Holy Spirit is free to move and operate. And all that believed were together. Look at this, brethren. All that believed, 3,120 were together. Now, they didn't sleep together, and they didn't do everything together, but they were together all the time that they could be together. That was a large crowd. They weren't together in their houses. They were together in the temple because there were porches in that temple. That temple was huge. There were porches that would allow Gentiles even in to the temple in Jerusalem, and they had a section of that temple where they would assemble every day. It tells us that in verse 46. But they would be there in the temple, then they would be in private homes. And there's no private home that held 3,120. But they went from house to house, as, we've, as we're going to see in verse 46. But they were together. They wanted to be together. Every time that we have an assembly called, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Saturday evening, Wednesday evening, men's, men's meeting, women's meeting, and you have within you a reluctance to be with the people of God, you have a soul problem. You are not like these saints. This church did not have a problem. It was unknown in the world at this time. Forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. That is a Hebrews 10.25 problem. It wasn't a problem here. A church full of the Holy Ghost doesn't have that problem. They can't get together enough. All that believed were together. Not only were they together in person, look at this, and had all things common. Does that all have a little limit to it? Did they have their wives common? But let's not, I'm not going to preach this defensively. I'm sick of hearing Acts 2, 41 through 47, preached defensively. I'm going to preach it the way it is and leave it there. They had all things common. They were willing to, to not consider anything they had their own but would give it up for a poor brother or a poor sister that needed it and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Look at the Spirit of God operating on people, steadfast, continuing, apostolic doctrine and fellowship, 
eating together, praying together, fearing together, increasing in fear, wanting to be together all the time, having all things common, being willing to sell their possessions, to raise cash, to give to others who had a need. They didn't sell all their possessions. There's houses. We're going to read in Acts chapter 12 that the church was in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, when Peter was in prison. And Ananias and Sapphira were told by Peter in Acts chapter 5 that they had the power of their property in themselves as to what they should do with it. But I want you to see that when people are filled with the Holy Ghost, they're not worrying about that side of the equation. They want to give. And until we have people in here running into poverty because they've given everything away to others in the assembly, I'm just going to preach this one way, the way that Peter wrote it, the way that Peter preached it and Luke wrote it. And that is that when people are filled with the Holy Ghost, they are not thinking about how they can get ahead. They are thinking about how the church can have all of its needs met and no one in there be wanting for anything. 1 Timothy 6 tells us that when Paul told Timothy, Timothy, tell the rich that they be ready to distribute, willing to give, and they can lay hold on eternal life. I want to tell you in this church, there were men laying hold on eternal life. In Acts chapter 4, it gives us a man who had another piece of property. He went and sold it, brought the whole amount, and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, give it to whoever has need. What do I need a second house for? Wow. That is religion. The religion of the Lord Jesus Christ getting a hold of men. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to every man as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. This was not a one-service church. You know, we've got churches today, one-service churches, two-service churches, three-service. They continued daily with one accord in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, that's common eating in the individual houses. Look, they were given to hospitality did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There was no division. There was no compulsion. This was free will, and they wanted to do it. They were cheerful about doing it, and they did it, and they did it big time because this was a church filled with the Holy Ghost like we are not going to read about a church from here on. This was the initial outpouring and baptism of the Holy Ghost. Praising God, notice what they love to do praising God for all he had done for them. You say, how could you praise God when you're selling your stuff and giving it to other people? You haven't met the Lord Jesus Christ. These people met. It's easy. Praising God and having favor with all the people. That's an amazing statement. Did you know that the rest of the Jews were impressed by these Christians? Because they were doing what Jesus said. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples by the love ye have one to another. The rest of the Jews saw these Christians and they grew in favor. Remember, it was the leadership of the Jews that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers and the high priests that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ones today in this country that hate the truth the most are the theologians and the seminary teachers and the college professors and the pastors and the ministers and the bishops and the cardinals and the popes. It is not the common people. Many of the common people, if they ever heard the truth, would believe it. They're sitting there starving to death in the pews, in the churches, as the book of Proverbs describes them, the congregations of the dead. 
It's the ministers. But the people saw these Christians and it blessed their heart. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. More and more of those that had been ordained to eternal life heard the truth, believed it, came, repented, were baptized, and asked for membership and were accepted. And that church continued to grow and grow and grow. And it was a huge church. The blessings of the Holy Spirit upon a group of people. Brethren, there's history in Acts chapter 2, and there's a lesson for us. And the lesson is in verses 41 through 47. I pray that God the Holy Spirit that we prayed for tonight, and that I'm going to continue to pray for this church, will bless us all to know what those verses right there are talking about and to practice them cheerfully and gladly. And until we've run to some excess, that's all we need to hear about them. We don't need to worry about going too far. We haven't gone far enough yet. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.